A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Grief fundamentally changes who we are and how we see the world. It's painful and heartbreaking, but also transformative and magical. This podcast is about grief and loss, but more importantly, it's about life and living fearlessly. I'm Kelsey Chittick, and welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Grieve. Hello, everybody. Today we have, I think what might be one of my favorite podcasts yet because it's got some joy and some answers in it, which I think as we talk about grief, we sometimes we get set on how we're feeling about it or what it's been like. But this one is going to be about ways that we can walk through it and how we can make this journey that a lot of people are on a little bit easier. So today my guest is Amanda Held Opelt. She's an author of A Hole in the World, a speaker, a songwriter, she writes about faith, grief, creativity, and she believes in the power of community. I already love her. Amanda spent the last 15 years as a social worker and a humanitarian aid worker. I mean, this woman has been doing stuff. And thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Kelsey, it's good to be on. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your podcast. It's a great resource. Thanks. Yeah, we're hoping to... I mean, my goal with this, I feel like there's a lot of talk about grief but at least I found in my experience, it was so sad and like grief groups were so sad. And I know grief is sad, but I wanted to see if I could find ways that we could look at this whole thing just a bit differently. Yeah, and that's right. So walk through it. So can you kind of tell us how you got here? Uh, your book is getting rave reviews. I can't wait to read it. I know you have had a lot of loss uh, back to back. So can you just kind of let us know how you ended up on this podcast? Yeah. Well, I had led like a pretty privileged life, to be honest with you, up until like my, my mid thirties. I mean, I had a trauma free childhood uh, for the most part, really stable parents. In fact, I don't think I had even been to a funeral until I was in like my late teens. I had some grandparents that passed away, you know, and they were very old when they passed away, they lived far away. So it kind of felt like death in the right order, if that makes sense, like easy, easy to absorb, expected, but then I just had this series of events that that started probably about five years ago in that my, well, first, my grandmother, who I was really close to, who lived near me, died quite suddenly. You know, she was older, but we thought we had some more time with her. Um, and I was in East Africa on a work trip at the time, so I couldn't make it back in time for the funeral. And then 
shortly after that, my work took me to a war zone. I, I served in northern Iraq as a hospital chaplain at a combat hospital that our organization was running to treat wounded civilians and combatants coming out of Mosul during the ISIS, I guess, the, the offensive on the part of the Iraqi government and, and coalition forces to retake Mosul from ISIS. So it was this kind of experience of violence, experience of warfare that was profoundly real. Like all of a sudden, like suffering war is not just on the TV. It's like in your face. This is what it looks like. And there was certainly a vicarious trauma that I experienced as a result of that time there. And then shortly after that, I experienced what would be the first of three miscarriages after a season of infertility. I've been fortunate enough to have two healthy daughters since then, but just kind of the not knowing of if this dream of motherhood would come true for us. And, you know, it was kind of a later on in the pregnancy. And so there was all that hope and expectation when it happened. And then about a year later, my, my sister, my only sister, my only sibling passed away very suddenly. She was healthy. She had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And she had this kind of mysterious illness where she started having static seizures and she died. It was about a two or three week battle with the illness. And then she died suddenly. I had two miscarriages after that. And so it was just this five-year season where I just couldn't even catch my breath. You know what I mean? Like it just, I never felt like I stabilized. I never felt like I had the opportunity to absorb one loss or one trauma before the next one hit. And that was when I realized like, oh, I had this illusion that because I had had a really stable, controlled, prosperous life, <laughs> that it would continue like that forever. And, and so grief knocked me upside the head. I felt like I'd been hoodwinked into thinking life was going to be good. And suddenly it was not good. Yeah. I mean, I haven't done the work that you've done in humanitarian issues, but I felt, I mean, five years ago, same for me. I was 40. I had a very blessed life, very loved and everything was just good. And I remember walking around most of my life being like, I'm just lucky. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I feel so bad for those people that have bad things yeah. happen. Like that must be awful. And I just thought, well, maybe this time I came down and I just got like the golden ticket, you know, like it just, yep. it just, I was really lucky. And I had the similar experience the last five years, starting with my husband's death and then a bunch of diagnoses, different instances, different things have taken me to my knees and which I hope we can talk about have changed me in ways that I wouldn't go back to. Yeah. It was a more, it was an easier life, but the depth was much less. Right. The connection right. to pain and sorrow was not even available to me in 2016, you know, and now it is like my best friend sitting with me. So tell me, I, I want to, we don't have a lot of time, but grief rituals to me are what we don't, we just have lost completely. Yeah. And the ability to kind of hold these two emotions of great sadness and great joy at the same time. Tell me what you've learned that kind of changed your way of thinking about grief and, and yeah. how, how, can we, how can we start to bring that back into this very uptight, Protestant, one-way, white kind of way that we grieve that is absolutely yes. the worst thing in the world I've ever well, experienced. <laughs> white Protestant, I am very eager to speak to that. Yes. <laughs> like, that's the thing is I think that I, I, I became interested in ritual because I felt a lack of ritual in my life. 
And I think, you know, you, you know how your phone knows things about you that no one else knows. It's like the algorithm knew I was grieving and was struggling. <laughs> and so it started flashing up these stories on my newsfeed and on Facebook about strange historic grief rituals that have been lost to time and history. And so I just started doing these deep dives. And as I, as I was learning about these ancient superstitions, these strange traditions and rituals, I found myself processing my grief, maybe for the first time. Um, the first ritual I learned about was Irish keening, which is the practice of the community all getting together at the wake and wailing aloud together like crazy people. Like they would all literally get together and lose it, like completely break down, completely melt down, no shame, no embarrassment, permission granted to do that. And I just thought how different that was than yeah. this little two hour funeral that we had for my sister, you know, or, and obviously no rituals really surrounding miscarriage. And so that it really, those rituals were kind of the, opened the door for me to start naming my emotions, naming my shame around my grief and my, how devastated I felt. I felt like, oh, what's wrong with me that I can't handle this? You know, right. it, it helped me name all those things and really begin processing it for the first time. I love that. You know, I think the logistics of death and then the way we do it here, where we, a week or two later, we all go to church and everybody cries. And then you go and like eat small sandwiches. Yeah. And then you just stand there if you're the person that lost somebody just kind of in this surreal moment mm. and everyone's coming up to you and it's it's very similar to your wedding, but it's sad. Yeah. And it's you're like, like this is wedding. You're like, this is confusing to me. The music's worse. Everyone doesn't look like they're having fun, but I feel like I'm doing the same thing I did at my wedding. And it just it also having children, I watch them be like, what the hell am I supposed to do? Like, what do you do when you lose a dad? Do you just hope no one notices? Cause that's what my kids did for a long time. So what, so the, the yelling, so one of the things the kids and I did at some point things, we were just miserable. So I, I just remember thinking they were so angry. So we just went to the dollar store and we bought a bunch of plates and I, they didn't know why. And then we took them back by the garbage cans on the concrete slab. And I was like, you guys can say fuck shit, asshole, whatever you want. And I want you to say it with every, they were nine and 12. They were like, we can do what? And I was like, you can let it fly for the next 10 minutes yeah. while you break these plates. I honestly believe that was like a turning point in our mm. grief work because they were so mad. Yeah. And they had nowhere to put the anger. So it was just boiling up. So what, what other things are you finding are deeply healing without a lot of time? Like what, what are people missing right now that yeah. helped you? Well, it's interesting that you talk about like just naming and releasing that anger. Like there's so, we just don't have a capacity tolerance for negative emotions in the, in this culture, you know, like how many times, like, do you come to a situation with a truly righteous indignation, like righteous anger, and you're told you're being shrill or you're told you're being, you know, catty or whatever the case may be like negative perceived to be negative emotions are really holy. That are and are really important. They have a role to play, and so that's what I found in some of these rituals. Is they they did kind of help name the anger. They also named fear. Like that was one thing I found really interesting. Is that so many of uh, historic grief rituals are rooted in fear and and kind of trying to exercise some agency over the mystery of death. And so, like the ritual of covering the mirrors, there are traditions that say. 
if you see your reflection in the mirror next, like if your loved one dies, cover the mirrors, because if you see your reflection next, you will be the next to die. Interesting. And so it's this fear of our own mortality, right? Nobody likes to talk about mortality. It's super uncomfortable, <laughs> but we are all mortal. Like it is the el- the ultimate elephant in the room. Right. Everyone you love is going to die. And, and this is like, this is what these rituals did is in some ways they provided like one right thing to do when you have no idea what to do. And I just found like that the bodily exercise of that was actually really important. Some of the rituals aren't particularly practical. (laughs) Like I studied the ritual of telling the bees, which I guess I could practice because my husband is a beekeeper. Actually, we have four bee. Yeah, this is real. We have four beehives just up here. And so I guess the, the, the superstition was that if someone in the household died, you had to go tell the bees or else the bees would die or fly away as well. So I suppose I could go tell my bees what had happened to me, but practically most people can't, can't do that. And and so I think the challenge is to say, okay, which of these kind of strange, impractical rituals can we repurpose and renovate for our own use, if that makes sense? Do you think that maybe that makes sense to me? Do you think that was maybe a way to get out to nature and just connect to, do you think like, it's the same thing about how I feel about birds or or, you know, I'll like, I'll go on a walk now and I hug a tree and I'm like, when did I become this way? But <laughs> I am a literal tree hugger. Why am I like this? What is wrong? <laughs> but I find myself being like, thank you, big old tree for just yeah. like holding me. I think it's really interesting because we, it's, it's not only that we can't be angry, but actually when somebody dies, most people, at least this happened to me, I don't know when you, your sister passed, how if it was for you, but when I would really get freaked out or anxious or overwhelmed, they'd be like, you should take a Xanax. Mm-hmm. Or you know what? I was like, I can't sleep. And they're like, well, take an Ambien. Nobody was like, actually, you're right where you should be. Just losing yeah. your mind. Are you losing right. your mind? Oh, you're yeah. in the sweet spot of grief. Great. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody why just you, once you stay up all night with those difficult emotions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like why, why, why are we always trying to say, you know, what you should do is go for a run. Or I, I do believe, I do believe walking is probably the greatest grief mm-hmm. ritual Yes. Yeah. Any and human taking being care can, of your body. Getting like your, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because this place isn't safe. Your brain is not a good place to be. But I, when I move my body and I walk and like a lunatic, like people in the neighborhood are like, there she goes again. I'm like, yeah, that's, and it's, it's miles and miles because it does somehow rewire some of the stories. And that, if yeah, I think that's the difference between caretaking a body who's grieving, because it's not just your heart that grieves. It's not just your head that grieves. Your whole body experiences grief, like the, the physicality of it. Physiologically, we experience it. So caring for your body versus numbing it or... Yeah palliating the experience in some way. You know, I, I've read a lot from psychologists about this healthy oscillation that we experience in grief of like confronting the grief head on, looking at square in the eye versus times where we do actually need to just distract and not think about it for a while. The problem is we've just veered way too far to the distraction, to the numbing and avoided the confrontation totally. You know, again, I'm, I'm, it may, there may come a time where it may be help, helpful and needed to take a Xanax to help. You sure. Yeah. I'm not saying that. Right. But you're absolutely right. That is the first thing people say to do is like, oh, you're wailing. Like you're not okay. You need to take a pill. And it's like, that's, that's a problem we have as a society. Right. I, I remember thinking the first night 
that I was losing my mind. And I remember thinking that's exactly what has, that should be happening. And I also remember a couple of days later, not sleeping for three days and someone gave me an Ambien. I was like, thank the Lord, because I yes. was about to go psychosis. Yes, um, exactly. What do you think about, I mean, what are your thoughts on religion and where we've, where we've gone in terms of, I, I'm, pretty much a practicing Buddhist. Meditation is kind of my thing, but I have a great relationship with God. I think Jesus was an amazing man. I'm pretty much open to anything that comes from love. But I do feel like our religions have tried to kind of give us answers to stuff we know nobody really knows. Yeah. So it yeah. feels confusing if you're like, he's in heaven and you're like, well, okay, I, I believe I believe my husband's in heaven, but I also don't disagree with other people who don't believe that for them. Yeah. Yeah. What if we gave each other a little more space to say like, whatever you believe, as long as it it comes from love and it produces more love is okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's challenging too, because so much of, of so many religions, I think that are practiced today, like the, the, the modern iteration of some of these ancient religions that we all hold, that many of us hold to, right. Are more, they echo more the values of kind of the modern self-help movement than like the, the true roots and origins of the religion. So like, I'm a, I'm a Christian. It is the, it's the faith I grew up with and kind of miraculously, I think the faith I've held on to, although white knuckled sometimes, but I think that like, I think that so much of the evangelical culture that I grew up in is like, we need to have an answer for every question we have. Like we're Christians, we're, we're modernists, like we're modern people. So we have answers to everything. Like science is no longer a mystery death is not a mystery, that there's just no capacity for mystery. And there's also like limited capacity for pain. And so yeah. what I mean by that is like the, the faith and the, the faith subculture I grew up with, with was very self-helpy, therapeutic, like vaguely Jesus loves you, wants to make you happy. Just believe in yourself and you'll be fine. The, there's brighter days ahead, light at the end of the tunnel. When the true historic roots of the faith I hold to are actually a religion that is kind of indulgent of pain. Like yeah. it is like, if you look at our sacred texts, like if you actually read the Bible in its entirety and you look at the writings of kind of ancient Christians, they confront sorrow at every turn and they, they, they immerse themselves in it. And so much so that the God that we believe in decided he was so concerned about the sorrow of humanity that he would step into humanity himself and, and, and bear the worst grief you can you can possibly bear. Like he took on death. He embodied death. God right. died. He subjected himself to mortality. That's kind of the thing about my faith that I keep coming back to. It's like yeah. too unbelievable not to believe. <laughs> and so I think that's why I'm still in. Yeah. Um, but I right. think that that's so. something that we don't, we don't like to talk about God as the dying suffering servant. We like to talk about him as the triumphant self-help. Like he's going to make all your dreams come true. And it's like, that's not how life is. And I don't actually think that's how God is, you know, and most ancient religions made more space for grief. And again, our modern iterations of them do not. Yeah. And I think you're, you're so right. And I, I love that explanation biblically. I think it's right. And it's also why I think Buddhism works for me because it's about sitting in the pain. It's about not having an opinion on whether it feels good or not, just mm -hmm. being with what is. And there's yes. something that makes you feel very close to God when you just sit with whatever you're with, because right. then you're just in this moment and this moment God is here with you, however that looks. That has been really helpful to me to when I feel overwhelmed with grief to just sit down and be with it. 
Right. And, with and it passes the of it. with the mystery yeah. and with the, and then when a hummingbird lands on my head, I'm like, I got you, God. Like, I know yes. that was a sign. And people are like, oh, you don't know. I'm like, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. I do. Yeah. And it feels good. So yeah. I always tell people like, in terms of rituals for what each of us have to do, whatever you left going, God, I feel a little bit better. That's your ritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's different for all of us. Process. Yeah. That's what helped you process what you were experiencing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, so like in terms of the rituals dying out, how do we even begin to have those conversations to, I mean, I've, I've been to tons of grief groups. I'm sure you've been to therapists and you've looked at this and read about it. Like, where do we even start, especially for our children? Because I, like you, never went to a funeral until my husband's. I don't think mm. I was 40. Wow. My grandparents died a couple years before my husband. And I I remember just death not even being on the docket. Yeah. <laughs> death, death is alive and well in our home now. Yeah. It is joked about. It is cried about. It is felt. Mm-hmm. He is missed. He is loved. We are okay. All that stuff you know, lives at the same place. And I, and I hope it's the same for your sister's kids yeah. as they get older, this kind of acceptance of what is. And I, I just don't know how we bring that back because even the counseling that my kids go to or I go to is very much either I find it's like the counselor going, I see that you're hurting and that yes, you're hurting. It's like, okay, we already all know we're hurting. Like, what do we do with the hurt? Yeah. What do we do with yeah. it? Yeah. Have you learned anything that you oh, could pass well, on? Yeah. Well, I went to therapy this morning and well, I mean, you know, I go on the regular. Of course. And I, yeah, I think it's just learning to accept, like you said it well, like we are okay and we are not okay. Like accepting that life is filled with both joy and sorrow and that the two can exist side by side. That like, just because you, just because you are filled with profound sadness, that does not determine the character and quality of your life. That like, it doesn't have to be categorized then as a bad life. Like I had these bad things happen to me. Like the brain likes to categorize things and, and that's okay. Like if I know that hot stoves might burn my hand, it is a, the ability to categorize things as dangerous, as harmful is a survival mechanism, right? Okay, fine. But that is not life. That's like the alligator brain. That's the reptile brain. That's not the human experience. That's that should not be the human brain to say like, this bad thing happened to me and therefore I will categorize all my days henceforth as bad. It's like, no, it's going to be both good and bad. This, this paradox of there are good things that have happened because my sister died. 
there are things that good things that have happened to you. Your you, you said it yourself. Your development, your capacity to love as a human that that resulted because of the death of your husband. Right. It doesn't make that. It doesn't make his death good. But it they just both exist side by side. You know. No, you're exactly right. And the other, there's so many gifts of grief that I have found that, and and I'm always shocked. And I I think about this all the time. And and until you have a dead person, you don't know how many people are dying. Right. It turns out it's happening all the time. I hate to tell everybody this, but it is. And I will say that it felt like before, before I had experienced great loss, that my life had, you know, a very small... uh, seesaw. It was like up and down, but very light. Now I feel like my joy is almost ecstatic when things are good. When I wake up and I go, holy shit, we're here. Like, I love being alive. I love being on this planet earth. And, and I'm so glad I loved him. And then when it's low, it's like, it's over. There's no hope. I'm never going to love again. My kids don't have a father. They're ruined. And I can go teeter tottering back and forth between those two things. But once you start to accept that ride that you are on this, on this equipment, this seesaw, you start to be like, oh, I know it's going to come back. Eventually I'll just push off and I'll get back to the other side. And they're both equally important. Yes. Well, and there's some like patriarchy at play here too, I think, because I think some, some, (laughs) I think that like women are so often told that like, that the, these intense, intense swings of emotion are, you're getting your period. You're, you're getting your period, you're yeah. hormonal, you're like, you're irresponsible. This is why we should never have a female president. I mean, you know, I've heard the whole gambit, all this right. stuff where it's like, what if we just actually are more in touch with the reality of how the world is and we are responding appropriately to it, you know? Yeah. Like, Catch I, I, up. It's, yeah. So like, once you kind of dignify the roller coaster a little bit and say like, there's no shame in these highs and lows, there's no, you know, now, obviously, it can turn into acts of unkindness towards other people when you lash out in your anger. But like, but the, but the emotion itself, the anger, the fear, the frustration, the, the grief, it's, there's no shame in it, nor is there shame in feeling that intensity of joy that, that grief kind of opens up for you. I, so I think Jerry Sitzer, he, it's a book he wrote called A Grace Disguise, but he talked about how grief is like a balloon. Like you expand your capacity, like grief makes you like a balloon. So your capacity for joy is increased. Your yeah. capacity for sorrow is increased and that's okay. I love that. What are you hoping that the book does when it comes out? I mean, what is, where do we even start to have these conversations and just like a different way to, I think too, you know, death was so scary for me for so long because I had no experience with it, no relationship with it. So I spent a lot of my, well, my entire first 40 years, just hoping nothing bad would happen. Yeah. Just, yeah. just really praying, just being like, I got you. I'm, I, I get that I'm lucky and let's keep it that way, buddy. And now it's taken me a long time, but I'm not totally okay with death because I know the pain that comes with it, but I am very aware of the, how quick things change and how ir- irrelevant, did I say it right? Irrelevant time is. Yeah. 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 And, and right. these are things that, you know, if we knew that there was these great insights that come as we walk through the hard times, would we be more eager? So, and and mm. even like thinking about the work that you did overseas, first of all, how did you get involved in that from where, from your life of ease? <laughs> well, what, what made I, you go like, that looks like a fun uh, place to start? 
Well, you know, I, I think that I went to some summer camp one time as a, as a high school evangelical and, you know, learning about serving the world and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think I went with like some pretty pure motives to try to serve those who are in need, but some, some many aid workers suffer from an inflated ego as well. And I was, I was eager to be the hero and sure. turns out there's a cost to that as well. But yeah, it, I, it's a, it's kind of a long story on how I got there, but I'm grateful to have done the work for, for so long. And it certainly puts things in perspective. It's amazing to see how other cultures cushion catastrophe too, and how they absorb it and how they communally confront it. So that was the gift the aid work was to me. Yeah. It's interesting when you go over and I think with death, what the the other part, and we, I would love to, we'll have to get on another podcast about it, but you know, grief is one thing, but trauma is another. So yeah. sudden death is trauma. War is trauma. There's a lot of ways. Uh, there's a lot of things that are set. Like I sometimes think we confuse the two. Yeah. Grief is is missing the person you love. It's it's the wishing they were here. Trauma is a lot of times how it happened, when it happened, why it yeah. happened. And I'm starting to see that maybe those two things have to be dealt with a bit differently. Because mm, grief yeah. I can handle on my own, kind of if I can just learn to love it and yeah. I flow with it. Trauma, I need help. I need like craniosacral. Yeah. Yeah. I need massage. I need meditation. I need exercise. I need like... I have to to keep that crazy from coming up right. and giving me anxiety or fear. So have you noticed those two things are separate, like grief and trauma? It, it, it was kind of in how I experienced them as as they happened. And, and that, yeah, I think that's why you ask me kind of what what I hope people take away from the, the yeah. book. And, and I think for me, it's that like there is such a, a vast array of resources that we need to avail ourselves of as we walk through grief and trauma. Like if you are a religious person, like, yes, like go to your religious community and and seek solace there and also it's it's okay to go to a therapist and it's it's also okay to you know to to say you know what I need to eat some some leafy greens on top of this chocolate glazed donut you know and like uh, whether that's a, a bodily resource caretaking your body caretaking your mind caretaking your spiritual life caretaking your heart I hope that's what people see is that actually that's what a lot of these rituals did. Some of them are food related, they're community related, they're getting outside and actually moving your body in some way. They're religious. I mean, I wrote about a lot of the the rituals of the faith, the, the Christian tradition that have died out. And so that is my hope is that people would say there are just so many, see that there are so many ways that we can address and and process our sorrow. And then I, I think my other hope for the book is that, again, as a person of faith, as a, as a Christian, and, and for anyone, no matter what you believe, you don't have to tie things up neatly with a happy bow and write this redemptive purpose. Like God doesn't need you to do that. I think we're very concerned in my religion about making God look good to the world. And it's like, he's okay. It's, he's good. Like, it's fine. It, like, it, like he is a God again in my faith who who suffered who, who subjected himself to death. It's okay to be honest about how you're feeling. There's space for that in this faith. I know many faiths make space for that. And so just to make people feel like you don't have to perform your way through grief. You don't have to find the silver lining every time. It can just be bad and you can just be sad and that can be okay and you can find joy again too. I love it. No, I I agree with everything that you said and I I look forward to, and I, I look forward to continuing for our generation to have different conversations than our parents did, because I do think 
we were the first generation that didn't have a ton of loss the way every other generation before us did. Yeah, there was yeah. a lot of wars, and you you saw Iraq, but most of us that were here, it was something we saw on TV, and we knew people, right. but it wasn't like our grandparents and our parents mm-hmm. who had Vietnam or World War One, World War Two, where loss was very common. Yeah. And at some point, there was so much loss, people just decided to bite their upper lip and say, like, "Okay, I'm just going to get through it." Yeah, um, that's right. And so, when those of us that were raised in the generation we were, we when grief hits, we have been feeling so good for so long it knocked us down. Yeah. And because of that, it's because we had no tools or practice of feeling awful. And so people like us now have a toolkit. And so we need to start to give kids toolkits and we need to talk about the things before they happen and, and take some of the, the embarrassment. I mean, I felt so embarrassed that my husband died Mm. too. I didn't want to be a widow. Yeah, I didn't. I really wanted to keep going with the good story we had. And my kids were embarrassed. Nobody wants that. You want your sister. You don't want to have the sister that's not here. You don't want to have your nieces and nephews not have a mother. So there's this whole thing of like, I didn't want this. And so the work is to go, I didn't want it, but I'll sit here with it and I'll I'll honor it and see where it takes me. I'm so glad you said that, Kelsey, because I, I think embarrassment humility, shame was the most confounding, confusing emotion I experienced in grief. And again, it was this embarrassment that I'd been like caught off guard. Like I should have seen it coming. Like I, I, I should have watched my back. And instead I let this get the better of me. And it's, it's not, I was just human. Like I'm just in the world, in a difficult world where there's pain and there's death and suffering and, and it's okay. There's dignity in your pain. And you know, we hate that word pity, but like, it's okay for people to pity you. It's okay for people to feel sad for you. And someday you will be able to be sad for them in a way that's really meaningful because of what that. you've experienced. I love that. Well, Amanda, I love it. Also, I think you live in Boone, North Carolina. I sure do. Yeah. I went to Chapel Hill. <gasps> Yay, yes. North Carolina. And so love I it. know that area well, but I wish you the best of luck on the book. And if there's anything we can do, but I these are big, important conversations that haven't been had in a while. So I, your book is, I, I look forward to reading it. Again, it's a hole in the world. Where can they get it? You can get it pretty much everywhere bookstores or books are sold. Um, it's in some independent bookstores as well. So love when people support their independent bookstores, but it's on Amazon and all the other places like that too. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And we appreciate it. I hope it goes well. And I'm so glad you have those two daughters. Yes. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep going. It gets better. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.